Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Amen. Um, So let's just pray. Father, um, we just pray, Lord, that you would... You would speak to us today through your word, God, Um, Lord, in such a way that it would produce fruit in our lives, God, of obedience to you, Lord. Um, Through everything that I share today, Father, I pray that you just would use and you would really um, just speak to our our lives, Lord, in whatever way we need you to speak to us, God. Yeah, Lord. And in all things, Lord, above all things, be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, so let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Amen. Acts 16, and um, I'll read from verse 16 to verse 36. It's quite a large portion of the text, but... Calvary Chapel. <laughs> You're used to it. Um, Acts 16. Paul and Silas in prison, from verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned. Am I in the right place? Cool. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul, came, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Christ Jesus, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Saul and Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, 
you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had, be he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. So we read there about Paul and Silas and this episode of them encountering a particular young girl who was possessed by a, a spirit, um, ministering to her, being imprisoned for it, then ministering to the prison guard whilst in prison and seeing him and his whole household come to faith. It's an amazing story and, a, and an amazing example. Um, I want to draw from this text um, what I've titled as three important tools for mission. Three important tools for mission. And those tools that we're going to look at are faithfulness, joyfulness, and effectiveness. Um, when I talk about mission, um, please now don't ex intend to spend my short time up here I'm trying to encourage or convince you to be about mission, um, as I believe that's a given, at least if you know the Lord Jesus. And I want to talk to you this morning and as missionaries, um, that is, those whom God has called and sent out to the mission field. Um, the Great Commission is... is evidence that we are all called to the mission field because um, Jesus gives the disciples the command to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them um, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded them. And that's where we, we know that this applies to us. It wasn't just a commission given to the disciples because he told the disciples, go and do this, but then commanded them to train others to obey the same things he'd commanded them. So not only just to go and, and baptize and to make disciples, but to go and make disciples who will follow that same great commission and go and make disciples. So... From the disciples to the apostles and on and on and on goes this, this cycle of disciples making disciples until it comes down to us and the ball now rests in our court to go and do the same. Um, so if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus as your savior, then you, my friend, are a missionary. Um, and I, I know that term might not feel comfortable for us all, but it's true. And even if you might not feel ready to say, you know, I'm not ready to be a missionary, then you are at the very least a missionary in training. Um, I heard a statement um, once that I really liked, which was that it's not so much that the church has a mission, but rather the mission has a church. And I like that. I like, I like that view and that perspective, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it's not in the Bible, but it makes sense to me. It, was, it almost seems like saying... I don't 
go to lunch and work either side. Rather, I go to work and have lunch. That's a poor perspective um, uh, illustration, but it makes sense to me. Does that make sense to you? Um, we are all missionaries, whether locally or globally, whether to many or to few, um, or even just one. Um, it's not a task reserved for clergy or church leaders or scholars um, or particularly zealous or talented people. The idea of a missionary is that there is a particular place or people group that we feel drawn towards um, and drawn towards to build a relationship with them and not just build a relationship with them but build a relationship with them with the intention of seeing them come to know Jesus. It's not an accident, it's a deliberate aim and goal. And when I think of missionary, I guess the, the, the word that stands out is mission. And I remember like, I know back in the day when I would use that word, there was, there, it held some kind of weight to say I'm on a mission. Like I've, there's something I'm gonna go and, and I'm out to achieve, there's something I'm out to do. And there's gonna be obstacles. But there's a MO, there's a, there's a mission objective that we're out to do something specific. And um, I think a great picture of that, I mean, we don't have to read it, but it's in Luke 10 where Jesus sends out the, the 72. And he gives them a whole list of things, like a checklist, like a, a toolkit. And he says not to carry um, a knapsack and, and don't carry a spare pair of sandals. And he even says don't talk to no one on the side of the road. Imagine Jesus said that. He said, I don't get into no conversations. You know, I think that in the King James says, greet no one. <laughs> like Jesus said that. Like, but he was, be focused. Be about your goal. Don't be distracted by conversations. Don't be distracted by just other stuff. Like stick to the mission. So that word mission, you know, it, it, I imagine that the, the, the first missionaries that Jesus sent, that they, they were really focused people. He, you know, it says, it goes on to say in that same um, verse in Luke, that if they receive you, stay in their house. And he says, don't go to no other houses, neither. Stay there. Which, which indicates that this wasn't just about making converts. He says, stay in that house. Build with them. Don't just share a couple words with them. Share your life with them. Find out what their questions are and, and try and answer their questions. Go through the scriptures with them. Don't just hit and run. Stay in that house. Stay there and grow and grow with them. Um, so I speak today to missionaries. Uh, maybe not missionaries to unreached, lost tribes, um, you know, in the remotest parts of the earth, but missionaries nonetheless. Maybe missionaries to your non-Christian families. Maybe missionaries to your workplace, to different industries, the music industry, fashion industry, film industry, to your local pub, your local neighborhood, your local council, mosque, gym, school, youth club, whatever. Wherever you feel that God has given you a burden to go and share him. So, back to the text. We read here of two such missionaries, Paul and Silas, and we jump into their story at an early stage of their ministry. In fact, just prior to this event here, to meeting this, this lady, possessive of a demon, they um, made their first recorded convert disciple, um, a lady by the name of Lydia. 
and they're about to meet a different young woman, but under similar circumstances. Um, and the circumstances, it's, an interest, it's interesting how prayer played a part in both meetings, in both encounters. Um, if you look back a few verses in verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. And they go on to speak with Lydia. But they found her at a place of prayer. They went to find a place of prayer, and there was Lydia. And they got into conversation, and Lydia ended up becoming a disciple. But then we skip forward in verse 16, when it's speaking of this woman, it says, Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit. So it, I would like to suggest that this illustrates a principle, really, which is that prayer precedes effective mission work. Um, in verse 16, it says that they came across this, this slave girl possessed by a demon that enabled her to predict the future. And it's here we come to our first mission tool um, from today's checklist, which is faithfulness. Um, now, one thing I do really appreciate about the Bible is its honesty. Um, it lays out the great achievements of godly men and women, but it also doesn't hide when they stuffed it up. Um, so today I'm going to use a few examples of my own experiences of times when I blew it um, as some illustrations. Uh, one such time, I was out shopping when a man approached me and asked me if I wanted to buy a laptop for cheap. Now normally, I would have just said no, kept it moving. But um, I'd recently sold my laptop and... Um, I wanted to replace it, but couldn't afford to just at that time. So when he asked me, my conscience screamed out, you know it's stolen, right? To which I answered, he didn't say it was stolen. I don't know. He might just be wanting to sell his laptop and reason the way I wanted to. In truth, I didn't want to know if it was stolen or not. I just wanted what I wanted. And to cut a long story short, Basically, I ended up getting conned. And I must say, it was quite a clever con. Um, but to be honest, I should have seen it coming a mile away. But I was blinded. I was blinded by the idea of me getting what I wanted the easy way, even if not legal. And so I overlooked the glaringly obvious. And I suspect many of the people who'd encountered this girl up to this point in their life were much like that. They were willfully blind to her suffering. They were willfully oblivious to the obviously demonic influence over her life. They were ignorant of how her owners were exploiting her to make themselves rich. They just wanted what they wanted. And doesn't this sound very much like today's sex industry? Women bought and sold, often kidnapped, trafficked, stripped of their dignity, exploited financially, abused physically, all for the service of people who are willfully ignorant of their pain, blinded by their lust to get what they want. Well, thank God that the apostles, Paul and Silas, they weren't like this, although they could have been. They could have looked at the situation and reasoned to themselves, well, look, this girl's quite popular. She's got some followers, and she's not like she's saying anything bad. She's saying, listen to these men because they're of God, yeah? 
So maybe if we get her on the board, part of the team, her followers could be our followers, and it's a win-win. They could have reasoned it like that. I mean, or they could have even gone as far as to say, well, look, while she's tagging along, might as well get our futures read as well. You know, she's got a gift for it. But rather, Paul and Silas cared too much for this girl's soul to be blinded by what she could do for them. Instead, after a short time, after a few days, um, they ministered to her, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, God used them to set her free. I wonder if we'd be like them today. That first tool again, faithfulness. Um, I was once in a Christian rap group, um, and we came together um, with the intention of proclaiming the gospel and seeing the rap culture affected by the gospel. And by God's grace, um, we began to get more and more mainstream attention. Um, after a short time, I guess we started to see things slightly differently, and amicably, we ended up going our separate ways. But I remember um, about the time that I had left, an amazing door had opened for the group, and they were able to perform at a, a huge event that most mainstream acts would have cut off their right arm to be at. And that was to perform on the same bill as, I guess, the world's biggest superstar rapper, Jay-Z. Um, but I remember having one particular conversation. Obviously, I won't say his name. He's a brother. But I had one particular conversation with, with, with one member of the group, and I was, I was saddened by it. Um, and what I was saddened by is that all he could talk about from the event was how amazing it was meeting Jay-Z. And, you know, I'm not, I've been starstruck before. I know what it's like to be starstruck. And some of you do as well. And you're acting like, nah. <laughs> I wouldn't be gassed by no one. But you know there's someone. There's someone out there who maybe they're, they're, they're just an expert in your field of interest. Maybe you're, you're into business and like Sir Alan Sugar is that guy that you just, if you ever saw him, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Or you're, you're a footballer and, you know, meeting Lionel Messi would just mess your head up. Like... But there's someone, there's someone who you rate and respect so high. Some of you might even be a preacher. Some of you are like, if you ever saw John McCarthy, uh, you know, you get gassed. We do, we do. It's, it's, it's human nature. But the point is that if one of these people were to say to you, I like you, I want to help you get ahead. It will be difficult for us to contain our joy because we would be so mindful of the doors that they could open for us. We'd be so mindful of the, the valuable advice they could give, um, potential financial investment they could make or networks they could open for us. Like, it's so easy to just see what they could do for us and how they could help us. And we could be so mindful of the great stuff that they could share with us that we totally forget that if they don't know Jesus, we have an infinitely more valuable gift to share with them. One that they need a thousand times more than we need of what they have. So I guess what saddened me in that conversation about Jay-Z was that my friend left with the encounter, he left the encounter, sorry, with Jay-Z enamored by Jay's talent and his fame, etc. 
But I wonder if Jay-Z left enamored by what he had to offer. And I felt saddened that maybe he didn't. Did he see that you have some stuff he doesn't have? Some way more important stuff that he doesn't have. Like the fruit of the Spirit. Contentment. Jesus. <laughs> like peace with God. Eternal life. A new heart. A life with purpose. Now, I know I'm probably laboring the point, but I saw a video of, on YouTube of a preacher. I won't, again, I won't say his name, but he was boasting of how he, um, he bought his dog a collar that cost $16,000. Some people are nodding. You've seen the video. And then he goes on talking about how he bought his son, uh, I think it's a Bentley, for his, his graduation and all of these things. And... What was really, really sad at the end of it was his reasoning for why he was, you know, living this kind of lavish, elaborate life was that I live in a neighborhood of millionaires. And how were they going to know that my God is great unless I got more than what they got? Sounds ridiculous, don't it? And there are many verses that come to mind to contradict that type of thinking, like the woman um, who had the might, who gave the little... And Jesus was more impressed with that than the guy who had loads. Um, Jesus himself says in, in Luke, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. But my favorite verse on this matter um, would be the words of Peter to the lame beggar at the gate called Beautiful in Acts 3, where Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Today, our world, just like this demon-possessed girl, needs people to be faithful to the mission. The mission to preach the gospel, to give that eternal, eternally valuable truth. To be faithful to the mission to pray and cast out devils even. To not be intimidated by being in the minority and to not fear the repercussions of being faithful. Repercussions of being faithful. <laughs> Some don't even know that there's such a thing. Surely the repercussions of faithfulness is tenfold blessing. <laughs> well, let's follow on the story of Paulus and Silas's experience and let's see what the repercussions of their faithfulness was. So they've been faithful in ministering to the slave girl and the scriptures then say that the people rejoiced and marveled in this powerful demonstration of God's love. Not exactly. But it's here we get to see Paul and Silas demonstrate the second um, mission tool and that's joyfulness. For being a witness, for following God's leading, for doing what God wanted, they find themselves surrounded by the enemies of God. Now, we'd like to think that if we're in the will of God, we won't face resistance. Everything will be perfectly fine. But here we see two men, obedient to God, that are now facing prison. Verse 20 to 24 we see that they're arrested under two false accusations. One, they're accused of trying to incite a riot 
Two, they're accused of trying to superimpose their Jewish traditions upon the people who are citizens of Rome. Let me tell you another short story of me blowing it. Once upon a time, long, long, long ago, <laughs> I was stopped by some policemen. And um, after quite a tense conversation, um, I was told that I needed to come with them across the road. It was literally just across the road to the police station for questioning. So one particular policeman attempted to, to, to handcuff me, I guess, but he put his hands towards me and I, I withdrew my hand and told him I'm capable of walking across the road to the station. And he didn't take too well to that. And um, as I was walking, another policeman pushed me in my back. Um, they forced me to the ground, had my face in the concrete, his knee in my back, and he forced my hands behind my back and, and handcuffed me like a criminal. Now my response to this was that this was police brutality and I was not gonna accept it quietly. So, I used my God-given gift and became vocal. And I began to shout. Not necessarily abuse, but I shouted my thoughts and my feelings towards the police for what had happened. I shouted about racism in the police force. I shouted about why people, including myself at that time, don't like the police or don't trust, feel like I can trust the police at least. Obviously, no offense to anyone who's involved in the police force here. This was just my experience at the time. <laughs> um, and I didn't shout for a few minutes. I shouted for about two and a half hours. <laughs> Real talk. Until, until the police gave up telling me to shut up. And even other people that were arrested started to tell me to shut up. And um, eventually I was released, actually, after they allowed me to see a doctor because I, I, I didn't have my medication with me. And the doctor saw me, took some of my blood readings, and told them they need to get me home immediately or they'll have a serious case on their hands. Um, and then the policeman that arrested me and pushed me back asked me if he'd like to give me a lift home. <laughs> and my pride said no. And I ended up walking home and thinking, oh, I should have just took that lift. But anyway. Paul and Silas on the other hand, didn't do like I did. They were grossly mistreated, far worse than me, yet they didn't let it cause them to sin like I did. Neither did they sit in their cells complaining to each other, can you believe this, Silas? Who does he think he is putting his hands on me? You know what I'm saying, Paul? And what have I done? This is an absolute violation. You could just imagine that conversation. Now, it's worth remembering that um, they were not just arrested, but the scripture tells us in um, verse 22 to 24 that they were stripped, beaten with rods, possibly whipped, thrown into the deepest, darkest cell, and even at their feet, put in stocks. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but whenever things seem to go up, upside down in my life, I tend to say this. And I don't know if this is a legitimate prayer, but... I say, God, what have I done to deserve this? You know that prayer, innit? <laughs> Why is it that me, a God-fearing Christian, part of a good church, trying, not poorly, but trying to serve God and serve his people, why is it that I find myself in such dire circumstances? 
joyfulness. Joyfulness. Well, we learn that to be joyful is not just a feeling of happiness. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, be joyful always. Now, if it was left to our emotional disposition um, to be joyful always, um, that would be an impossible task for even the happiest person. No one can be joyful always. Um, but the book of James puts it in a way that I find really helpful. In James 1, it says, count or consider it all joy when you face difficult trials. And I like that word, count or consider. It's, a, it's an evaluation term. It's, it's, I've worked out that it's worth being joyful in this time. So we see that it's a calculated decision to be joyful and not an emotional response to what's happening around us. And um, I hope I don't say that in a way that makes it sound easy because counting it all joy is the struggle of my life. And um, I'm convinced that we are incapable to do this but by the grace of God. So Paul and Silas, their response was similar to mine in that they responded by being vocal but in a much more godly and missional way. It says that they prayed and sang hymns all night. They chose to be joyful. Now, let me suggest a few reasons why they chose to be joyful. One, they understood that God was able to work everything out. Simple. As we read in James, it says, Count it all joy when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. They knew that God was able to work something out of, of any circumstance. They understood that success was about being faithful and obedient, regardless of whether people liked them for it or hated them for it. They didn't live for people's applause, but they lived for the Lord to say, well done. They understood that sometimes being a success in God's eyes can sometimes look like a failure in man's eyes. Over the years, in my personal experience, I've been blessed to have much support and encouragement in doing music for the cause of the gospel. But at the same time, I've had to face family um, who think that I've wasted my talent, who think I've wasted my time and, and failed in fulfilling my potential as a musician. Paul and Silas knew that not everyone would get it. Not everyone would appreciate it. Even for myself and for the, for, for the team, um, we might rejoice that a boy leaves a gang, but will his gang members rejoice that he's left? Probably not. We might rejoice that a boy quit selling drugs, but... Will his suppliers rejoice that he's quit selling drugs? Probably not. And the third reason they chose to be joyful would be that they understood that God uses pressure and even pain to shape us into the image of Christ. I like this verse in Zechariah 13.9. It says, I will bring that group through the fire and make them pure. I will refine them like silver and purify them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. And we know that process of fire, of gold being purified, means going through an intense amount of fire that 
brings up the impurities out of the gold. But just like gold goes through that intense heat to be purified, God uses hardship sometimes to bring us to maturity. Um, the last of our tools for mission that we see in this passage is effectiveness. And um, by that I mean having the ability to affect and influence our environment. And God gives us many different ways of doing that. It could be talents or gifts. It could be just skills or things that we're good at, communication skills. There's all, all, all different ways. But Paul and Silas were effective in affecting their environment. And we see that in this, in this episode here. I'm going to read from verse 25 to 34 just to remind us where we're at. From verse 25, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and all his household. Now, I don't believe that this earthquake that happened in the, in, in the prison was, was, it doesn't say it was God, but I really don't believe it was a coincidence. But I believe this was a sign from God to show that he can deliver miraculously from even the most darkest, hopeless circumstances. Also, God was setting the stage for Paul and Silas to be used in powerfully ministering to this prison guard. Could it have been that God wanted them right where they were so that they could be there to touch this guard's life? It would be true to say that sometimes we go through what seems like earthquakes in our life just so that God can use us to minister to someone else going through that same thing. Look at how effective Paul and Silas's witness was. Even though the prison doors were burst open, no one left. Now think about it. We have a prison full of thieves, liars, frauds, murderers, criminals, crooks of all kinds. And the prison doors are flown open, and they choose not to leave. Think about it. Now, I suggest, because it says earlier in the verse that when they sang their hymns and they prayed, it says that the prisoners listened. And I suggest that this could have been due to them not leaving, could have been due to the prisoners hearing Paul and Silas sing and pray all night. And maybe like the thief who was on the cross next to Christ. Maybe they, who looked at Jesus and, and saw his, his guilt and this man's innocence, maybe they saw in these men an innocence that made them acknowledge their own guilt. Or could it have been that Paul and Silas carried such an anointing 
of God's presence that thieves, crooks, and killers had a change of heart when these men of God were around. I don't know if you've ever had an unbelieving friend or work colleague that apologizes every time they swear around you or because they know you're a Christian. You've probably all experienced it. And um, one of the events that I was speaking about that we, we, we do in North London, um, the four-day event, um, we've had actually during that time, um, the police have verified that during that week they've had a recorded decrease in crime and antisocial behavior. Effectiveness, affecting your environment. Now, it's sad that there are some churches. I remember one time I, was, I had a gig at a church and it was, it was in an estate. And I was walking through the estate and I, I was asking for directions for this church. And people were like, church? There's a church in the estate? And it's sad that sometimes a church can be bang in the middle of where it's all going on, yet no one even knows they're there, yet be totally removed from the, the world that is planted in. So whatever the reason was for these prisoners not escaping, one thing is for sure, and, that's the, and the prison guard knew this, and that's that it, it was surely a miracle. It was nothing short of a miracle. And a miracle that I am convinced was largely due to the effective lives and witness of Paul and Silas. Lord, may our lives be so effective that we too would see miracles around us of transformed lives in dark places, of hope in impossible circumstances. But Paul and Silas's effectiveness didn't stop there. The prison guard is so sure that the inmates would escape when he, he, he wakes up because he was sleeping. He wakes up and sees the doors wide open and he's so sure that the inmates would escape that he thinks, I am dead. Like, I'm going to lose my job. He'll probably lose his life. But he so fears what's, what would happen to him in that they'd escaped on his watch that he attempts to take his own life. And the prison guard thinks, it's all over. I've blown it. I might as well end it all now. I don't know if you've ever thought that before. I've thought that many a times while on a diet. Like, <laughs> a bad day, and it's like, I might as well just forget it. It's all over. Bring on the haagen <laughs> No one ever been there before? I might as well end it all now. But as the prison guard lifts his sword to kill himself... Paul calls out with a loud voice, it says, don't do it, we're all here. And I wonder today if God might be calling us as missionaries to cry out to someone with a loud voice, don't do it, I'm here for you. The church is here for you. Jesus is here for you. And maybe you know someone who's ready to give up. It could be someone you know, a friend, a family member. It could even be yourself. Ready to give up on life, ready to give up on trying to change. Ready to give up on your marriage, ready to give up on fighting an addiction. Ready to give up on looking for a job. Ready to give up on hope. And maybe you might be that voice to someone that points them to Jesus in their time of need. And I love how the, the prison guard comes to the apostles 
to, to, to Paul and Silas, and he asked them, what can I do to be saved? They were so faithful, joyful, and effective that they didn't have to beg him to be saved. He begged them to show them the way. Show me how you can have joy in such circumstances. Show me how you can be faithful. And the question he asks is, what can I do to be saved? Now, this guard must have held some considerable authority. And he was probably used to people asking him, what can I do to be saved? But we see that when God moves in a heart, status goes out the window. There's no rich, poor, low, middle, upper class. There's no prison guard or prisoner, just people. Just sinners in desperate need of a savior. And, in, and this prison guard, in an instant, sees his security of his job and his security of thinking that he's got it together and he's in a position of authority thrown out the window. His high position suddenly means nothing. And his eyes are open to see that these falsely accused beaten and bound up prisoners, Paul and Silas, actually have a freedom that he doesn't even understand. What can I do to be saved? Just as Paul and Silas answered this question for the prison guard and told of this awesome Savior, Jesus Christ, and how simple faith can bring us into relationship with him, um, I'd like to invite um, Pastor Ephraim um, to just come and minister to anyone who may be asking that question today. What can I do to be saved? And um, as we think on that, maybe some of you have never asked yourself that question before. Maybe you're pondering that even now. What can I do to be saved? I've heard about it. I've seen it with others, but what does it mean to me? How can I be saved? And how's God going to save someone like me? I know he can do it for you, and I know he did it for her, but can he reach me? Thanks. People have many different ideas about how they can be saved. Some people think if you have enough money, um, that's going to be the answer to life. If you have power and status, as Jahazel was talking about, people will respect you and their doors will open for you. Some people even think, you know what, if, if I go to church once in a while, then, you know, that's going to be sufficient for God to be happy with me. Undoubtedly, none of those things are able to save us, even going to church. You see, one of the things we appreciate from the scriptures is that it clearly states that everyone has sinned. Everyone sinned. And we see a picture of God's holiness and attitude towards sin in the law of the land. On Friday, we were in Brixton um, sharing the gospel. And I was having a conversation with someone who said, yeah, you know, I'm right with God. And... Um, everything's fine. So I said, on what basis would you say that you're right with God and everything's fine? Well, you know, a person can be fine with God if they, if they, if they repent and if they, you know, do their best 
to, 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 to really please God. So I said, hmm, let me just clarify a few things. Because a lot of us would have been satisfied with that answer. Because we know, okay, you've got to repent, right? That's what the Bible says. And then, and then you just do your best to live a holy life, right? But that's not the gospel. That's not actually how you be saved. That's, it contains an aspect. It contains a portion of the truth. And so my question to him was, look, suppose you stand in front of a judge and you're guilty of a crime and you say to the judge, look, you know what? I'm really sorry for what I've done and I, I promise to do my best to live right and live an, uh, an upright life as an honorable citizen. Please judge, just let me go. Is that going to satisfy the judge? Would that judge be just if he was to turn around and say, oh, your, your crime doesn't matter. I can see that you're really sorry. Okay, off you go. Even though you're, you're guilty of drink driving and almost killing someone. Even though you're guilty of breaking into someone's house and stealing their stuff. Even though you're guilty of whatever it might be. It doesn't matter. Would that judge be just? Would justice be satisfied? Would it be fulfilled? If you were the victim of that person's crime, so they had knocked down your daughter, your son, whilst drunk and in charge of a vehicle, would you be satisfied and happy to say, justice has been properly fulfilled, they look really sorry, and they're not going to do it again, and of course not. We recognize that that wouldn't satisfy us in understanding that justice has been fulfilled. And so as I was having this conversation in Brixton with this gentleman, this was just Friday night, he said, but no, 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 you, you see, that's man's laws. Man's laws are different to God. So I said, well, yeah, you're right. But in what sense do you mean that? Well, you know, because, you know, as men, we kind of establish our own principles and our own laws and so on. But God is higher than that. And I said, that's the problem. I said, that's what we should be concerned about, that God's law is actually higher than ours. That ours are a poor imitation of the strictness of God's law, because God is perfect, God is pure, God is holy. There is absolutely no sin, no wrong in him. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews, without holiness, no one can see God. So he said, well, then we're all in trouble, right? I said, that's the clearest, most true statement you've made since we've been talking. We are all in trouble. We're all guilty before a pure and holy God. So my question to him was then, so what do we do then? You might think, well, that's a great opportunity to give him the gospel. Well, so what do we do then? He said, I don't know. What must I do to be saved, in effect? Just as the Philippian jailer said to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And that's that place that we need to arrive at. We need to arrive at a place where we recognize that my works are not enough. 
My attempts at goodness are not enough to please a holy, just God. Because no matter how much good we do, it will not undo the sin we've committed. So you have a man arrested, having committed a crime 40 years prior. And he was a model, upstanding citizen. Pillar of the community. Philanthropist. Gave to charity. Had businesses. Paid his taxes. And at the age of 65, he's pulled into court for war crimes. And he's sentenced and he's jailed. Because time doesn't forgive sin. And all of his charitable deeds and his good works didn't erase what he had done. And that's how it is for us. Coming to church today hasn't made you in any way impressive in the sight of God. It has not in any way caused you to become relieved of the guilt that you've been under, that I've been under. So it takes more than that. What, what more does it take? It takes for us to appreciate that God is holy and that he judges sin. And this was my conversation with the gentleman on Friday. I said to him, look, let, I said, if there's nothing else that you take away from this conversation, please hear and understand this. And I pray that God would give me the words to say it as clearly as possible. Literally, that's what I said. I said to him, it's true that we must repent. We must recognize that we're guilty and we must accept that and not try and excuse or justify ourselves. But there's something more we must do. We must appreciate that actually God looked at our guilt and had anger towards our sin and yet what he done was he diverted that anger and directed it toward his son and he poured out his anger upon his son. You ever seen somebody who's really mad and they turn and they punch a wall and they express their anger and the wall takes the force of it and then they kind of cool down and regain their composure, sometimes with broken hands. But they had to express, God isn't emotionally angry like that but in his holiness he must punish any defiance of his virtue and his goodness. And he chose to punish his son. It would be like God turning and punching his son when he really ought to have done that and wanted to do that to us. Now, hopefully, that graphically portrays the reality of Christ's sacrifice, that Jesus willingly took the anger of God for your sin and my sin so that justice could be satisfied. That's one of the Christian, central Christian doctrines, substitution. Jesus was punished, punished as our substitute. He stood in my place, in your place, to take your punishment so that you could have his clean slate his clean record. And so in exchange, a transaction took place. And so, how do we benefit from that? 
The Bible says not only do we repent, but we believe, we trust, we put our faith in Jesus. Jesus says you were in debt to God beyond your ability to repay. I've paid that debt for you. Now, at that point, you have a choice. Am I going to trust that Jesus really had enough credit to pay my debt? Or am I going to continue trying to work my debt off, thinking that what he's done isn't good enough? Jesus paid your debt. If you will humbly and gratefully receive what he's done for you, and you're thinking, where's the strings? Why would he do that? Why would, why would God punish his son and not punish me? Well, that, my friend, is grace. God says, I, I do this for you as a gift to you, as an expression of my love for you. And you don't deserve it. And you're right to ask, why? Because it demonstrates my goodness. And it demonstrates my love and my generosity and the supreme value of my son. And so through recognizing that we're guilty and accepting and trusting that what Jesus done and only that alone is sufficient for us to be saved, then truly you'll be saved. Repent and believe. I'm going to ask the guys to come back up. And so that's why Christianity, the Christian life, is all about Jesus. And that's why we're called to be the missionaries who go and share that message, that good news of the gospel. And if we're sharing, you know, people, you've got to do better. You've got to be better people. We're not sharing the gospel. That's just moralism. We share that Jesus is the Savior because he was sacrificed for our sin so that we could be saved. And when a person truly has repented and put their faith in Jesus, it will result in nothing less than a desire to be like him, to follow him, and most importantly, to obey him. Recognizing that God raised him from the dead, sealing his approval of Christ's sacrifice. And has now given him a name which is above every name. A name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I challenge you today. You know, maybe you uh, have been a regular church attender, but you appreciate that actually my right, me being right with God has not been based on what Jesus done, but based on my efforts or my standard or my view. Well, you know what? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And as you rethink your position before God Jesus stands with open arms to say if anyone will come to me you know what 
There's no way that I'm going to turn them away. And you can complete the journey of being saved and start a whole new life with Christ. And if that's you today, then we invite you after to come and speak. Speak to us, myself, Jahazel, any member of the care team with the, the hearts on the, the tops there. Or the person that you came with, the Christian that you came with. Maybe you'd feel most comfortable speaking with them. I'm sure that they would be delighted to speak with you and pray with you in introducing you to eternal life through Christ. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.